0: Lately, I've been thinking a lot about trust, what it means to trust, or more often, what happens when you stop trusting. I think a lot of the problems that we face in this country are really a crisis of trust. We as a society have given up on trusting each other, trusting institutions like Congress or the courts, international bodies, all of it. And I think it's hard to talk about trust without discussing the media. Our relationship with the media has changed so much over time. Consider Batman and Superman. Two of the most popular superheroes of all time. Batman is really sad boy billionaire Bruce Wayne. He's broody, his stories are dark, they're grungy. They deal with corruption, psychology, organized crime, dark stuff. And Batman's opposite is Superman, a.k.a. Clark Kent. Clark Kent embodies what it means to be good. He is kind, compassionate, honest, and bright. Superman fights for... Truth, justice, and the American way. When the creators were writing Clark Kent, they could have given him any job. He could have been a cop, he could have been a firefighter. I mean, they even could have made him a baker or something crazy like that. But our glowing beacon of truth and justice is a reporter. That says a lot about what we thought about reporters at the time. How do we go from that to where we are now? What happened? Who's to blame and how do we fix it? This is what frames my conversation with today's guest, Arjun Morthy. Arjun is the host of the podcast Unbiased and the CEO of The Factual, which is an app that's aiming to rethink how we consume news by removing bias. I really wanted to talk to Arjun today because I think that he's on the forefront of figuring out how we do this differently, because there are solutions. We can make this better, but not if we don't try. If you have thoughts on this episode, ideas for future episodes, or if you want to tell me just what's on your mind... My inbox is always open. Email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Let's get started. I listened to your episode with Jonah Goldberg, and you mentioned that you tend to, you poll your users, and most of them identify as moderate or hold moderate positions. I see that with my listeners. They, they tend to be moderate as well but we don't see that reflected in Congress. So if we all say that we're moderate and that we want moderate policy solutions, how come we don't vote or act that way?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, so yeah, so our the readership of the Factual, we surveyed them, they said, you know, roughly 60% moderate, independent, 20% conservative, 20% liberal, which uh, when we compare it to Gallup data, it looks actually like the United States. So if there is a preponderance of moderates and independents, why do we have hard left and hard right policies dominate? And- Um, It was actually in talking to a couple of our other guests. So Lee Drutman, who is a political scientist at New America, he's a really sharp guy. Um, He really helped us understand. He has a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. And it really enforces or it really clarifies what happens. Like, first of all, we have only two options at the polls, which itself is, um, it makes a lot of things binary. And even if you don't fully agree with one side or the other, it's like, well, what else are you going to do? So while we may, a lot of us are moderates, when we get to the polls, we're like, well, I kind of hate this one, but I hate this one slightly less. So I guess the lesser of two evil. So that's one element that's playing in. It. The other thing Lee made clear is he said, you know, we have this election system that's called winner take all, or rather first past the post. I think that's the lingo they use. And what that basically means is in an election, If I get one more vote than second place guy, I get the whole district. Too bad, so sad. And so in that kind of contest, what ends up happening is you want to basically be clear and extreme to win just enough over the next guy. You don't have to win the majority of people anymore. You just have to win your segment. And they need to show up more than the next guy's segment by one vote. And that encourages more sort of extremist commentary and, and thinking because who cares about the majority anymore? And that and that's one of the big reasons why Lee advocates for something called proportional representation that you have these large districts. And if you you know if you win first place with 30%, you get 30% of the district or 30% of the seating power, and then the next person gets 20 and so whatever. Um, there's of course ranked choice voting and all, other kinds of things. So basically, Lee says our electoral systems. Are built to reward extremist thinking um, and combative thinking. Our primary system is also terrible. In fact, arguably, maybe even worse.
0: Yeah, I would say we're terrible.
1: Yeah. So, and and so you've probably read about this. Our primary system, you know, the, the traditional logic apparently was in the primaries. You tack to the extreme. You're 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 really. Principal position in some corner so that people can tell how you're different than the next 12 people from your party. Mm -hmm. And then once you win, you tack back to the center because they all know that the center is really where most people are at. That used to be traditional politics. But apparently, I I don't remember all the details of Lee's commentary, but it no longer works that way. You sort of win the primary with your crazy speech and then you stay in crazy camp because that sort of Keeps you keeps your loyal base out there.
0: Need those small dollar donations.
1: Yeah, there's some of that Mm -hmm. for sure. And then the third part, I would say, and this is uh, probably more from me than it is from anyone like Lee, is uh, our social media and media system rewards the extreme and the soundbite sort of stuff. So the the nuanced, moderate position is just not sexy. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you say? It's like. Look, yeah, we do need to, you know, when it comes to gas prices, okay, America should be more energy independent. Um, it's tricky because shale oil is not always good uh, for the environment, but in the short run could be good. Like, you know, it's it's just not a incremental very... incremental
0: change. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it just doesn't sound good versus like, you should not drill. It's destroying the world or drill, baby, drill, because mm-hmm. we do this. We get out of the Southeast pockets. We get out of the Russian pocket, the Venezuela. We are golden. We are... Ki- Like, it's just so much better. And on social, of course, it's amplified a hundredfold. And then you start to think, well, maybe that's actually what the country thinks or wants. But anyone who's taken the time realizes that social is not a reflection at all of how people think. It's like this weird slice of the population. Mm -hmm. They're just really loud and outspoken. And most of us like, I don't know, really? Um, So I think these are a lot of the things that are driving us to have more extremist policy, the electoral system, the lack of proportional representation, the media, social media sort of doom cycle. uh, All this makes us get extreme policies, even though most of us are probably in the middle.
0: Right. Because I think like with social media, too, if you ask me to respond to an article written by an extremist, you're probably going to get a more extreme response from me than normal because like you're triggering something that I feel passionately about. Whereas if you were to ask me, what I think about corporate taxes, you're going to get a very slow, meandering, wishy-washy policy. But I think that what's challenging and really particularly challenging for the media is that you can't, you can't form a business around the idea of eating your vegetables. Like, come over here. You get to do homework all the time. Right. Why watch the football game when you can read the intricacies of tax policy? You're going to end up with an audience of two.
1: You're of course correct that... The way media is built and funded, um, historically, you know, for most of the last 100 years, the majority of news outlets are funded by ads. Um, uh, The New York Times is one of the rare exceptions now that actually has more subscription revenue than ads, but the majority of places have been ad-driven. And when you're ad-driven and you're getting, every day we're seeing new and new sources and outlets pop up, all of these are competing for your attention. And if they compete for your attention, the best way to win is to carve out some niche that you really focus on and then really turn up the dial on how crazy it can be to scare people to some degree. And that's how you win them over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the media model is built for that. Actually, this is long before social media and all, even the you know the explosion of news sources. You know, The old adage in the news industry was always, if it bleeds, it leads. Right, it's been right. the adage for a hundred years or more, and so if you read only the news, you come away with a distorted idea of everything is bleeding, but most things are not bleeding. It's just if it's only if it bleeds, it's in the news. So mm-hmm. there's this distortion of story selection. There's the distortion of social media and the distortion of the business model itself and the distortion of story selection. Um, all of which is to say that. I do think there's an alternative. I mean, that's what we're doing at The Factual. Uh, we're not a household name yet, and we're not a massive business. I don't know that we will be, maybe, I hope. Uh, but what we're trying to prove is that, first, we build a news business that has no ads. We don't care about likes and hearts and tweets. It's irrelevant. Just, mm-hmm. We don't do that. The way that we select stories is transparent and based on information value and how unopinionated stories are. We're trying to give you the facts. That's our job. It's not our job to give you the answers. We don't know the answers most of the time. We Do the best we can to give you as many of the different angles from across the political spectrum. You get to decide. Very different sort of idea than most typical news, which is we're catering to this one slice. We're like, we're just giving you the facts. It's your call. Um, and then the third is it's a subscription business and a very mm-hmm. low-cost one at that. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, and I missed the last one, which is the way that our our community also runs. So we have these daily polls uh, that we have people weigh in on and comment, all the social media, um, the negative signaling elements of it are gone. So there's no, there's a, our like button is called the respect button, but -hmm. you can't see the number of respects something's received. Hmm. Um, Users are anonymous so they can speak honestly and freely without worrying about professional backlash. But conversely, we also don't have all comments rated. I mean, all comments listed in either chronological order or number of likes. It's listed based on information quality of the comment. So it's there's a whole bunch of technology behind it and, and algorithms. But um, all of which is to say we're trying to craft something that takes away the ills of current media environments, both the business model and the way that they run and show that there's an alternative. And so far, we've been modestly successful. So I think... The opportunity is there to do this, uh, but it's hard. It's definitely hard.
0: Jumping off of that, what I heard a lot is that you're trying to restore trust, mm-hmm. essentially. Yes. Trust your transparency. And in preparation for this episode, um, I read a Reuters poll that says the U.S. ranks last among 46 countries in terms of media trust. And... I think that that is very interesting considering all of the press protections that we have in place, like the, we don't have a propaganda dominated media landscape like a country like Russia. Right. Um, so I'm curious if you think that result that we're last among 46 countries in terms of media trust says more about us or about the media?
1: Um, I think it probably says more about the media than it does about us. Uh, so fundamentally... The U.S. media landscape is one of the most competitive landscapes in the world. Maybe India might be close. Like the U.K. is sort of competitive, but I think we're an order of magnitude worse in terms of just mm-hmm. number of people competing for attention. So it's just such a dynamic landscape and when everyone's fighting for your attention. You're invariably going to have these sort of very biased narratives come out. And so... If you look at, you know, the Knight Foundation does this uh, survey, I think it's every year or two on all kinds of things, particularly around trust. And so, yes, it's true. Most people in the United States don't trust the media. But if you dig deeper and ask why, the number one consideration that comes up is 83% say the news is biased. It's either very biased or extremely biased. Mm -hmm. And... So it turns out that most people think, I don't trust the media equates to the news is false, fake news. But that's not it. It's not that the news is outright false. You you know, unless you're traversing an in info wars or junk like right. that, like most of it is actually, it's not false. It's just selective omission. It's mm-hmm. framing of a story. It's having a narrative and fitting the facts of the narrative. And or what you
0: choose to cover and what you don't.
1: Correct. Exactly. And that's what's upsetting the public. That's why the public is saying, I don't know if I trust you. We all know at this point, look, the New York Times is a good news publication, honestly. Mm -hmm. But unless you're completely naive, you no longer think the New York Times is the bastion of truth and justice and is right on everything. I think we can all have figured out they're pretty liberal in their views. And even though they try to delineate opinion and editorial from news, it all seeps into the news side. So that's really what's at the heart of it. It's bias. And that's driven by the fact that so many places are competing for attention. They're all increasingly trying to carve out a niche. So then they all look individually biased. So the solution may be something like what we're saying, which is you have to read multiple viewpoints across political spectrum. Um, So
0: let me ask you, what type of bias do you think the mainstream media is most guilty of?
1: Well, I mean, general political bias, of course, is sort of Mm. what dominates it. But um, if you think about right now, let's take um, random stuff in the news, right? So uh, race and gender are very big in the news. and there's sort right. of if you think about almost every story, there's some sort of line about race. People mm-hmm. of color are affected like this. Uh, black people are disproportionately this or that, et cetera. And while it is an observable fact in many cases, it is not actually always useful or relevant. What I mean to say is, if you're talking about a policy and you're like, black people are disproportionately affected by X policy, mm-hmm. it's not because they're black in a lot of cases. It's not like someone made a policy that said, if you're black, you get half of whatever. You know, A lot of times it has to do more with wealth and class inequality. And class inequality would be a better proxy to talk about a lot of things. But if you see in liberal outlets, they'll usually default to race rather than talk about economics and class. And then conversely, on the right, uh, you'll see their talking points that they're continuously driving. Um, And so I think they have their narratives that they set to play for, that they know their audience expects. And I don't think they consciously mean to do it. I do think most journalists genuinely try to report the story as best they can. But by virtue of the editing uh, cycle or the people who write the headlines or what have you, it tends to gravitate into a certain storyline in in all kinds of news outlets.
0: I'd like to push back on that a little bit because I I don't deny that political bias is an issue. Fox News is, is... the main offender to the degree that I don't even really want to punch at them at this point. Mm-hmm. There is no denying that. But when you look at other mainstream outlets like ABC, NBC, the Washington Post, mm-hmm. or just like other large outlets, I think that you see less bias towards one political party or the other and more of a bias towards escalation or towards um if it bleeds it leads. I, I so. personally think that that is more damaging than a political bias. If you're always trying to take it one step further. If you're biased towards a more sensational story, I, I see that as more of an issue than political bias.
1: I think that's a very fair point. Um, and yeah, you may be right. Um, it's one reason why I think the responsibility of journalists should be to give context. And, uh, it's, it's what we look for, you know, when we rate articles at the factual, is did this article give you as much context as you need? So, you know, here's a, it's a little bit of a glib example, but if you take COVID, which generated the most headlines of all time, I think in the last few years, mm-hmm. um, you know, most headlines would be like a death toll or a death rate or some death, death sort of thing. And one uh, commentator sort of just off the cuff said, yeah, well, it wouldn't be much of a headline if you said 98% of people who got COVID survived, you know? but it's actually true. Uh, now, theres it's irresponsible because a 2% death rate, if that's where it ends up being, I think it's somewhere between one and two, is still very, very high. Most people may not think of it that way because you're mm-hmm. like, 98% survived. Yeah, but you don't want two out of 100 people dying either. That's quite a bit. Right, and right. so it's, it's sort of a play with numbers and how human intuition works that's not very responsible either. But the point was, you want to give context to all this stuff. And so the best journalists who did COVID coverage were not alarmist unduly. Um, and I'll take a random example. She's not even a journalist. She's actually a professor who's now an opinion editor or a, a columnist at the New York times. Her name is uh, Zainab Chufacci. And she's actually a professor. I want to say North Carolina or South Carolina somewhere. She wrote a book called, uh, uh Twitter tear gas or tear, tear gas or Twitter or something like that. Um, she's very smart and she's really thoughtful. And when she was commenting on Twitter about um, COVID, she tried her best to straddle the midline of here's where you need to be worried and here's not. So she was one of the very first people to say, you should be outdoors playing all the time and don't worry about masks. The likelihood that you're going to catch it outdoors at the beach. Um, you know, there was like for a while, the uh, a lot of publications ran pictures of Daytona Beach and people playing on the beach without a mask. This is in 2020 and they're, How irresponsible. And Zeynep was the first to say, actually, no, that's probably a pretty good thing they're doing. They're, you know, there's a breeze blowing off the off the sea and they're outdoors, like good for them. And so I think a good journalist or a good journalism outfit, should give context to the numbers of the bleed, if it bleeds, it leads. So yes, there's this thing that happened. It's really bad. We're going to give you the facts. By the way, the context is this is a particularly rare issue. This is actually what real life normally looks like. This is the prevalence of this incident or not. This is how it compares to other counties, states, countries, et cetera. So now, reader, you have the context to understand this rare event, which may be tragic, but also everything around it. I don't think most journalists do that very well.
0: Do you think that that, I mean like, so I I agree with your point broadly that I think that adding context um, is critically important because I also, I think that journalists are often more informed on any particular issue than the average person. So Mm they're in a good position to supply that context. But I also think that there is something to be said, like if we were to apply that across the board, um, I'm going to give you an example and I mean it's probably a straw man argument so I apologize for that in advance. But um, let's say tomorrow I am hit by a car and I don't make it and it's covered in the news. And they say, you know, Hillary Lombard, outstanding podcast host, dead too young. And then they talk about my life and my death as one does. And then at the bottom they're like, but, you know… She was hit by a car and died but most people that get in cars don't die. Bye. Yeah. Do you think that that serves the story well?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's not quite the context that I would aim for. I think what would be what should be added on that is for example, um, what has been the the incident rate of tragic fatalities on the road? Has mm-hmm. it been going up or has it been going down? How does this city compare to other cities of comparable size? Um, what potential laws or safety procedures could have been in place or are in place in other places that may have prevented this tragic death. And then it starts to paint like, look, this is a horrible thing, but what can we learn beyond the fact that this poor young lady who was an amazing podcaster has lost her life? You know, it's, um, hey, this thing is bad. It's getting worse. We've got a problem. Or this is really rare. Like it's awful, but it doesn't happen often. Or There's this other city next door, which is way safer. How can that be? We have the same stuff. This is weird. Something is off. about. That's the context that I'm saying is so very critical. And it's hard. You know, as a journalist, you've got deadlines and you're just trying to get the stories out, whatever. But that's the responsibility part. And then I, as a reader, feel like, okay, I'm not alarmed at a situation generally. I feel sad for this young lady. That's what Mm -hmm. you want to come away with if it is, in fact, a rare event. Mm-hmm. versus feeling like I'm so scared to get into a car now. Cause you know, I heard about this girl and this happened. Like I don't want I don't want my kids walking to school anymore. You don't know if they'll get hit by a car. It's like that's not that's not healthy. You can't mm-hmm. live like that.
0: Big tech plays a big role in this. It's it the elephant in the room in any conversation about the media. <laughs> Let's say again to use this this story of my untimely death, reading that is one thing. And I think that maybe if I read it, I come out of it with the result that you're talking about, which is where I feel sad for me, but not too scared to leave the house. But then an algorithm comes in. And when I finish reading this article, I'm like, oh, man, Hillary, you're going to miss her. It gives me a bunch of other articles from unrelated news outlets about a bunch of other young podcast hosts that were struck dead. And I don't think that the media outlet intended for that to happen.
1: Yeah, YouTube is a- amazingly good at it. Good Lord. I think YouTube's probably the biggest offender, frankly, uh, in that regard. There's two parts to this, like so much of moderate discussion, right? There's a part which is personal responsibility, and there's a part which is on the companies. So let me start with the personal responsibility. We live in a capitalistic society, and you're going to encounter companies that are always doing things to manipulate our attention or grab it. It's just the nature of the game. We as consumers have to be better prepared for this nonsense. Um, Media literacy is such a dull conversation. No one wants to have it. But the truth Mm -hmm. is, we all really need it. Like It should be required teaching. And in some states, actually, it is. But we have to know to look and ask questions and think critically. It's not an academic concept anymore. It's a very daily life sort of concept. You need to be critical thinkers. You have to ask questions. So that's one half of it. I think we're always going to be subjected to whether it's social media or some other tech or something. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm sure people said this, you know, 50 years ago, even when Advertising blew up in magazines and you're like, oh my God, that ad told me it seemed so reliable and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was hawked by this guy who I really, you know, so over time, we've always had to deal with this. It's very, very amplified and social. We have to get good. On the other side, I think some of these companies are so, so dominant um, that even though they're private companies, they've crossed the realm of just being simple private companies. They dominate, unfortunately the square of public discussion, the square of public discourse. And so there does need to be some sort of examination of what they're doing to this discourse and how they're manipulating it, either knowingly or unknowingly, such that people are coming away with a very distorted view of the world around them. Um, I don't know if that's regulation. I don't know if that's you know, some degree of transparency on how their platforms work, et cetera. But there's no question that They play a bigger role than they ever maybe thought they would or intended to. Yeah. I don't I don't necessarily throw Zuckerberg under the bus or any of these guys. Like I think when they started, they were just building something cool and they thought it'd be big. And oh my god, it became so much bigger than they ever imagined, and now is such a big part of society. No one's prepared for that. I wouldn't, no matter how good I am, I wouldn't. So they're in a tough spot, they do need help, they do have to rethink what they're doing because they it's just way beyond what anyone expected. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have great answers. I don't know, to be honest, how to fix the situation. So the part I try to lean back on is, well, we're not just dumb actors in this game. You know, we're free thinkers. We have to do our part to resist this nonsense as best we can. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Um, so that's part of where I go. <laughs>
0: I think that that's challenging because I believe that we are not dumb actors. But what concerns me more is when we choose to be dumb actors. And I don't actually even fault people for that, even though it concerns me so much. Is like you get home from work. Your kids are screaming. You have to cook dinner. The last thing that you want to do is watch like depressing and intricate coverage about Ukraine to form a nuanced opinion about nuclear posturing. Yeah. And then debate it amongst your peers. So I think that that is where I do feel that the media has a higher responsibility to find a way to feed us vegetables in a way that we can take. But it's also hard if we don't want it. Yeah. And I was thinking about that a lot with The Factual because I've been using it for the last week. I think it's great. I think it's really cool. If you're Wonderful. listening, I think you should download it. Um, <sighs> but one of the things that I was thinking about when I was using it is that the type of people that are attracted to unbiased news or even some of the guests I've had come on to talk about pro-democracy reforms. The people that are interested in things like that tend to be the people that don't necessarily need it as much as people that aren't. And I think that that comes down to eating your vegetables. Is like if you're open to the idea of broccoli, you probably eat carrots or like some (laughs) other vegetable. But like if you're violently opposed to broccoli, your nutrition is probably not in a good place to begin with.
1: So I think, you know, this is probably the the bit about the factual that makes me the happiest. Um, Our readership is in all 50 states in More than three thousand zip codes. We once overlaid our subscriber base uh, as a proportion to the U.S. population density, and it looks like the U.S. population map. It's almost even. Uh, We have subscribers who are CEOs, and we have unemployed, homeless people who pay for the factual, which blows my mind.
0: Maybe they shouldn't, but I'm happy they do.
1: Well, we yeah, it's it's you know it's a very affordable subscription for a reason because we want it to be accessible to everyone. We have pastors that use it. We have multiple pastors in reverence because I know when they sign up, they sometimes have their signature and their email, so I can see. We have ex-convicts that are subscribers. Um, And I know because sometimes when people comment in our polls, they'll say, you know, I did this. And so I say all this to say we have a ridiculous cross-section of the US using this product. And it seems unlikely to me That pastors and ex-convicts and homeless people and CEOs in all 50 states and 3,000 zip codes are magically only the people that already liked carrots. It doesn't seem likely. I think actually the majority of people um, want what we're trying to give. The key is, though, to be respectful of people's time. And that to me is such a critical thing. You started this question so well by saying You get home, it's been a long day, the kids are screaming, you've got to make food. That's real life. And so when I think about delivering news to people like that, our goal should be, let's give you everything you need as quick as possible, as easy as possible in whatever format you like, and then bounce, go on and get on with life and do something other than read the news. That's a very different mentality than every other news organization I can think of. Most news organizations, and again, in part, driven by the business model being ads, the more time you spend, the better it is for them.
0: Right. It's similar to an app.
1: Exactly. And for me, I don't care. In our app, we don't track time in app. We don't track clicks or views. It's completely irrelevant. All I care about is, do you use this on a regular basis? Ideally, every day or two. Are you using some part of the factual? Great. Then we're doing something right. What mm-hmm. you read, when you read, how long you read, I don't really care, it's irrelevant to me. And so I think that this respect for people's time is what is missing. And if we did that, then everyone's willing to do five or 10 minutes of vegetables a day. Don't make it an hour long vegetable session, that's awful. Five or mm-hmm. 10, i most people probably put up with it, it's not so bad.
0: You and I both have hour-long podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Keep listening, though.
1: (laughs) Well, I do think the podcast, though, is a very different medium in that I hope, and and certainly having listened to some of your episodes, it's enjoyable. You're listening to a conversation, hopefully, between people that you find interesting. It's enjoyable. And truth be told, a lot of people who are listening to podcasts are multitasking, driving, cooking, something or the other. That's a nice thing. Like have it running in the background. Why not? That's very different than active reading. I'm going to sit down and read something for 10 minutes to really learn the facts on Ukraine. Like,
0: Yeah. It's like, oh, you didn't read that white paper? No. Exactly. No, I did not read that white paper.
1: (laughs) So when we do, you know, when we're operating more in that mode with our daily newsletter or the the briefing of the app, be as quick and tight as possible. That's the goal. Mm.
0: So switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about the rise of independent news. Yes. We have the mainstream media, right, which just for the sake of a shared definition, I'm putting New York Times, uh, NPR, Wall Street, Journal, ABC, NBC, all the acronyms, Fox. Yeah. People don't trust that group, right? We're like, no, can't <laughs> trust them. They all have a bias. <laughs> Who they choose to trust is very interesting to me because the same group that's like, I can't trust Anderson Cooper. Or I can't trust NBC News at 7. I can trust known liar Donald Trump or I can trust... Obscure journalist on Substack, yeah, or I can trust podcast hosts, yeah. How? What? Where do you think that that breakdown happens?
1: Yeah, so you know, I think uh, if I was to espouse a a rule to go by with the news, is don't trust anyone entirely. Um, This is the critical thinking part. Every news source has some sort of bias if it's writing content because it's written by humans, humans have biases, that's normal and natural, accept it. So I think every writer at the Times has a bias. I think every writer at every place has a bias. It's okay, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm fine with that. You know, what we want to do is give them context so they know what to expect, but otherwise expect that. Um, I think there's a couple of interesting things going on here. The first is that actually sometimes the specialist sources uh, and some of them are on Substack, uh, I, I tend to uh, screen out individuals and look more at publications. So there's a Jonah Goldberg, who we spoke about earlier. The Dispatch. <laughs> That's right. The Dispatch, great publication, is on Substack. You know, it's run on Substack, but it's a publication. It's got editors and writers, you know, it's, right. happens to be at Substack. So um, I think a lot of the smaller outfits are actually in their area of expertise better than the likes of the Times, the Journal, and the Post. What the internet has done is is a lot of huge flourishing of news outlets, and each of them has decided to focus on something, some to the detriment of us because they're hyper-partisan, but sometimes because they get really, really good journalists on that topic. So to rattle off some names, there's a site called War on the Rocks. Most people wouldn't know it, but it's like former war correspondents, I think mainly AP, I want to say. Really good. I mean, the foreign policy stuff is mind-blowing. You read two articles in there, you're like, geez, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's it trounces anything that we're gonna see at the times of the post. And again, not because they're bad, but this is all these guys do. Mm-hmm. You talk about civil liberties, uh, reason or the intercept. Very good. I mean, they are sharp on this stuff, they are gonna hold your feet to the fire. I don't say any one of them is gospel, but I would take two or three of them and say that's really good coverage. And so what I think the media landscape has allowed is there's great journalism out there. That's our fundamental thesis at Factual, which most people sound, I say this is the golden age of journalism and people are like, you're crazy, right? And I'm like, no, I'm telling you, this is, there's the best writing we've ever had in the world. It's just really hard to find. It's really hard to find amongst all the crap that's out there.
0: Yeah. It plays with the same volume as crap. Exactly. (laughs)
1: That's right. Arguably, crap does better because of how social media cycle works. So our job at The Factual has always been that we are first and foremost a search engine. At at its core, that's what we try to do, is search and find great news written by all these outlets, both big and small, oftentimes the small, because our search ranking doesn't care about popularity. Just like I said, we don't care about likes and tweets and backlinks and all this stuff. So we find these small outlets, like The Intercept and Reason and American Conservative and Dispatch can outrank the likes of The Times and The Journal and The Post on some topics on some days because they'll write really in depth because that's what they do. Um, And so, yeah, a little bit of a meandering answer to say that, you know, um, I know that people may not trust mainstream media, and understandably, because they do have bias, but I don't think they should extend it to, and I therefore trust X wholly. There is no wholly trust. There's no gospel anymore. Everyone has a bias. Accept it, get used to reading more than one viewpoint. It's by the way, the formula that our parents did in their day and age. Like, I talked to my dad, and I remember he used to get, you know, two or three newspapers at our doorstep in the morning. This is when I was a kid. And I was like, Dad, why are you reading two or three? Like, just read one. He's like, No, you can't just trust one. You have to read two or three. And I didn't understand what he was saying back then when I was a kid. But what he was basically saying is, you've got to see different viewpoints. That's the whole algorithm, that's the whole secret sauce read more than one. Don't believe that any one person is giving you all the answers. It's just not likely to be true.
0: Because you are what you eat, right? And if you only consume one outlet, your opinions will almost match up perfectly with whatever news you're consuming. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we're all very interesting people with lots of interesting backgrounds and perspectives and ideas. Great. Let our media diet reflect that. Don't have a uniform one. Read it all. Read it from across. And again, with the time constraints, I understand. So let's try to make it easy. And But don't fall into the habit of any one place is the gospel truth. It's going to burn you when it comes to news.
0: To your earlier point about if it bleeds, it leads, is that if you follow this logic, if it's dramatic, if it's spicy, more people are going to read it, right? Mm-hmm. Which would imply that conflict... Is good for business but i think that what's interesting about that and primarily on broadcast and radio more so but i think the argument can be made for digital outlets like national review or pod save america i think they're very guilty of this if conflict is good for business you would see much more debate than you do and i think that if you look at um Even like Rush Limbaugh, when he was first breaking out, he was bringing people on his show to fight him, basically. Yeah. But now you don't see that. You see you're bringing people on the show to agree with you about who you should fight. Like the Democrats are the worst or Republicans. God can't stand them. And that's the whole hour. Why do you think that we are so afraid of conflict in coverage?
1: Um. Jonah actually answers, Jonah Goldberg answered this to some degree when when I was talking to him. And he said, you know, uh, back in the day when we all listened to primetime news uh, and all of us, you know, tuned in, whatever, at six o'clock or eight o'clock, you know, you'd get a broadcast getting 30, 40, 50 million people watching it, probably more, actually. Today, the number one uh, journalist is, I think, Tucker Carlson.
0: It's a very liberal use of the word journalist, but yes.
1: Sure. Tucker Carlson on a good night gets about 4 million people. And so what Jonah was saying is that there's this ridiculous fragmentation of the news ecosystem Mm -hmm. and we're all playing to our base. So our base doesn't really want to come in and see the fight. They want to hear that the other side is wrong. It's an elixir. But what's really important to notice, if only 4 million are showing up to Tucker Carlson, it's actually not that big a base either. Mm-hmm. It just so happens to be the most consistent block that shows up to any one place. So if you're competing for a thing for attention, you carve out your thing and you give them the same elixir day after day after day, and they come and the ad game works perfectly. It's great. But most of us don't fit into that mold. Most of us don't want to be fed this stuff and. and psychology says we're all about confirmation bias and it's true confirmation bias is extremely strong. But I think people also have a really good bullshit meter and they feel like they're being sold a bill of goods. They're like, yeah, I don't know about that. And again, not everyone because clearly some people really like, you know, the hearing the narrative that fits with them. But I think the majority of people don't want that. It's just that the business model never supported a business like that because those people are not going to be there. Like, okay, I want the facts. I'm not, you know, but if you're talking about it, great. I got what I need in the first five minutes. Why am I sticking around for the other 55 minutes of your show? You know, the debate part that you're talking about, I think appeals more to an intellectual crowd. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, it's not that people I think are not intellectual. It's just, you need to prioritize that in your life to say like, I really want to hear this debate. I think it's going to be good. And uh, and then set aside the time for that. And like in the, in the grand scheme of things and all your competing priorities, you know what? Netflix sounds a whole
0: lot better. Yeah, it's a privileged position to have the time to be intellectual enough for a debate. Exactly. And
1: I think the majority of people just, it's, it's too much I, oh, through my life. Just tell me what I need to know and let me get on my way. And I think that's, that's the reality of it. What I do like, though, is that there are other formats like podcasts that I think are much better for this. And not only because it's long form and audio, but because... You don't have to play the same game with podcasts. Many podcasters that are doing this, including you, Hillary, and and me for that matter, I don't think I'm going to build a ginormous multi-billion dollar podcast business. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it because it's something I love and I'm interviewing amazing people and we're having good conversations that are hard to see elsewhere. I think this network of people like you and me are bringing the debate back Mm -hmm. in a way that can't be done in the really mega corporation ad funded models anymore. We're fighting for tension. But for us with our thousands or tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of listeners, yeah, that's great, that's Mm -hmm. good. Maybe that's how it all plays out. Don't expect the monolithic corporation to once again reintroduce vigorous intellectual debate. Mm -hmm. Maybe it actually happens amongst all of us down here in the smaller community.
0: How do you reconcile that with the very concerning trend where we no longer agree on what the facts are? Um, Not so much your debate point, because I think, yes, you should listen to our podcast specifically. (laughs) But I think, uh, and this is a propaganda show now, um, (laughs) I think that what you're saying would be like, I mean, I'm on board with it already, but I'd be more on board with it if I thought that just giving people the facts is enough, I think COVID is an excellent, excellent example of this is whose facts, whose facts are the facts that we're giving them. So we've got 10 minutes. Okay. (laughs) Here's, um, here's the rights facts. Here's the left's facts. Here's the pro business facts. Here are the pro labor facts. Here's the teachers unions facts. Here's the students facts.
1: So I think uh, it's such a great question. And by the way, um, there's a really great article in the New Yorker from a while ago that says, Why the Facts Don't Change Our Minds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very good article on a whole bunch of social psychology and on how we perceive facts that challenge our pre existing beliefs and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's excellent. Anyways, um, what I took away from both that article and even from the question is that, or, and, and specifically to COVID, let's talk about COVID. The answer on the facts. Through much of COVID, actually, should have been. This is the best we know as of the data as of now, and things are changing. It's such a meek statement, but it's actually the truth. Um, I and I, I cited Zainab uh, because I thought Zainab tried the best to straddle that line really carefully. She said, "Here's what I've seen. Here's the studies. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's what I think is the right path, but I." I'm not certain. You might want to try this if you're in this. Like you know, it was, it was just a, it was a very nuanced sort of uh, recommendation. Mm-hmm. But I loved it, and by the way, millions did. Zainab was very, very famous through this. Uh, the people who, who knew of her, and so what I take away from that is that if you were a journalist reporting on COVID throughout this time, and you were really trying to do a good job, then you've got to paint the complexity of the picture. There's a journalist. Her name is Amanda Ripley, and she said. Uh, embrace the complexity or something like that. She's got this essay that was very, very famous a few years ago. And she basically said, things are complicated. You've got to embrace the complexity. You've got to appreciate the complexity because I'm sorry, there are no easy answers. And when you do is when you actually have trust in the person who's talking to you. They're not dumbing it down. They're not spoon feeding you the answer mass all the time or to hell with mass. They don't do anything. It's giving you a nuanced answer. Like, look, the death rate varies a lot based on pre-existing conditions and age. It matters a lot how you choose to live your lifestyle, indoors, outdoors, et cetera. Who is in your family? Who else is at risk, et cetera? So here are the kinds of recommendations you might want to think about. Do this outdoors, do this indoors, do this in schoolrooms. do this in bars, do this in, you know, all this other stuff. Like, it's not a headline. It's a 12 headline soliloquy, if you will. Um, and I think, with rare exceptions, most journalists didn't do that. It was so disappointing that they cherry-picked every one of the facts to support the viewpoint they wanted to have. Um, but doesn't that go in direct
0: was... conflict with what you were saying about making good use of people's time? Because, sure. like, I think that if we're like, what I'm hearing is nuance and context are required. Correct. But nuance and context take time to get. So, if you're a journalist and you're trying to write an article, If a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Like If nobody reads your very contextual, nuanced article, is it effective? to,
1: To be clear, it's not that people are not spending time reading the news. It's just that they're spending time reading lousy news or a bunch of news that makes them angry or upset. So I'm just saying replace the time where you were reading angry, upsetting stuff with factual stuff. You're still going to get the nuance and the same amount of time. I'm not asking you to make more time. I'm saying don't waste your time reading the junk. That's totally wasteful. And so, on this stuff, um, you know, there were times when I'll pick a random article Reason, which is a libertarian outlet, actually at times did a very good job, I think, on COVID. They definitely have a pro business element that's kind of a libertarian thing. But um, once in a while, they would write an article that was meticulously researched. And it was right around the time where they were talking about was Sweden's COVID policy irresponsible or not. And, you know, there was a very, very sharp divide. Sweden was grossly irresponsible or Sweden was definitely right. And Reason did a really good piece on like, man, the jury's still out. We don't know. And there are elements that say they might have done okay, but it's really not clear. And by the way, now, a year and a half later, we're finding out that actually Sweden did okay. Uh, in a lot of respects, and so I'm seeing some journalists did do that, and said it's this is all the stuff. Um, they didn't beat around the bush. I don't think they belabored it with the liberals will tell you not to wear or wear masks all the day, and the conservative. they didn't do it. They just went straight into like, hey, everyone's talking about Sweden. Let's talk about Sweden. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. And right now, jury's out. But for now, we would say these are the kinds of precautions to take, etc. And Yeah, it wasn't like a 20-minute piece. I think it was like a seven-minute piece, something like that. So I I think that um, facts, nuance need not require much more time. And I think it really starts from a place of humility. If you're a great journalist, I believe you're very humble in accepting you don't know the answers either. This is the best that I, who study and read and write on this topic, can tell you to the best of my abilities. If you're an arrogant journalist, you will spoon feed the answer right down. Biden is so clearly wrong. Or, of course, the Dems would say this, or the, Liber- or the conservatives say this, or the Republicans. We're not there. We're not in those. We don't know all the trade-offs that are going on. These are hard trade-offs, very hard trade-offs. On any policy decision, I promise you, wherever the Dems and the Republicans are yelling at each other, I bet you it's a really hard thing. And there's no easy answer, no matter what AOC says and no matter what whoever on the on the right, Ted Cruz is saying. Um, and maybe other people don't want to hear this or something, but if you're a journalist and if I was a journalist covering that beat, I would paint the complexity in as tight a manner as I could. And yeah, if people didn't read it, guess, well, then either I'm a crappy journalist or the world isn't demanded. But at some level, isn't that why I joined this profession? Is to help people be well-informed on the on an issue? then that's what I'm going to go do.
0: But I think that so often you have journal, like journalists aren't the ones making the call. Cause I think you're right is that they do, they join it for that reason. But also we have an incentive structure for business, like businesses have to make money. Journalists are not making money, unfortunately. Like I wish that we, I wish we paid journalists and teachers better, but we don't. So it's like they, I think that most journalists, they are in the profession to make a difference and to inform people and help them inform themselves. But that sense of Clark Kent style idealism is in direct conflict with we have to make money.
1: I think it's in conflict if the model for making money is attention grabbing and ads. I think the dispatch and what Jonah is doing is starting to prove that it's possible to do something that's not about that. Look, I don't know if we're going to ever see a corporation the size of CNN that is going to be stitched together with these kinds of ideals. Maybe there's a whole bunch of dispatches. Maybe there's a whole bunch of journalists you know, duking it out uh, like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi on Substack. I don't know. But what I'm saying is um, if you're not beholden to the old revenue model, you can do the kind of journalism you set out to. I don't think it is going to pay very well ever because the nature of the product you produce is that... Um, You don't need a whole lot of highly specialized skills, unfortunately. It's not like writing code, Mm -hmm. which is really a specialized skill. So by virtue of that, supply and demand, there's going to be more people that can do the kinds of things you do. And and so it's just sort of the nature of this. But I really do think um, we can have a, a thriving news ecosystem, but not in the way of old. So here's another example that I think could work well. Um, There are a couple of local publications I know. One's called the Palm Springs Post and one's called the Charlotte Ledger. Little small companies out there, one, two people, tops. Uh, They found a loyal following. Subscribers are paying them. They get to do the kind of journalism they want and it was local journalism specifically and it works. It pays the bills. It's a little stressful, I'm sure, like any business, but it's doing the things they want. They're not earning million dollar outcomes and having a three martini lunch and winding down, they're just they're doing the job they want. So what I'm saying is it is possible, but I don't think it's going to be possible the way that media ran in the 80s. Mm. That is gone. I
0: don't think that's
1: coming back. I think it's a new way that's coming. Um, and if our expectations as journalists and as media cre- or whatever, media houses are more reasonable, I mean, it could work.
0: We are living in an era of distrust, right, and skepticism, particularly at institutions such as journalism, um, but also extending to like Congress and the presidency, even international organizations like NATO. We're seeing institutions are not in a good way right now, Um, but the media is one of the most maligned institutions um, in at least American culture much more so than these others. Um, Do you think that it's because we interact with them more often or do you think that the cause is something different?
1: Uh, I think uh, our political system likes to take shots at the media maybe more than in other countries. I don't know that for a fact. Hmm. It certainly seems that way to me. Like the media is a punching bag for a lot of things. Um, I also think the media sometimes deserves the punching. Right. And so... Uh yeah, like I said, you know, uh, earlier, we have a highly competitive ecosystem in media, more so than most countries. Perhaps mm-hmm. India is the exception I can think of. It makes our media tend to do things that are more sensationalist and salacious and stuff like that. Um, and therefore they deserve the punching sometimes. Um I think most journalists in the good places are trying to do a good job and they're wrapped by bad business models and bad incentive structures and it's hard for them to do the job that they wanted to do. Uh, you know, on the broader question of, of trust in institutions, I think one element that I've found is that institutions and experts often talk down to people. And it's like, well, we know, we've done all the research. Like, why are you even questioning us?
0: Don't even worry about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, here's the answer. Mm-hmm. That, what, what more do you need? It's a mistake. You should always treat the public and the audience as capable and intelligent. Yes, for sure, time-constrained, I get that, but capable of reaching the right conclusions. You don't need a college degree to understand the implications of policy, nor do you need it. If a policy is, is thought out well, it should be possible for anyone to understand it. There's a, um, here's a nice parallel in, in the technology world where I come from, cause I'm an engineer. Um, there's a concept called E-L-I-5, mm-hmm. explain like I'm five. And so you'll sometimes see it as an acronym. They'll say E-L-I-5, you know, how planes fly or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea actually comes, I think, from a physicist named Richard Feynman, who was a phenomenal physicist. Uh, and he basically said, if you can't explain things, in language that a five-year-old understands, and you actually don't really understand. it. And so I thought that is, to me, that's at the heart of this stuff. No matter what position of authority you hold, an institution you are, and scepter you carry, when you're talking to people who you need, you need their support, you need society to pull together, you owe it to them to have good explanations. And that's hard. It is hard to simplify complicated policy stuff to down to ELI-5 language, but that's the damn job. Mm-hmm. The job isn't just reading papers and coming up with the policy. The job is also explaining it to society and the public in a way that they understand and appreciate. I don't think they really think of that as the job. They think of it as like, I did the job, I did the research, I got the policy, I wrote it down. Mm-hmm. Just trust me on what the hell, have you not seen <laughs> that from like Harvard, Stanford, Warden? No, that's not it. That's not good enough. That's my beef with uh, institutions and experts, and why I think sometimes we don't trust them as much anymore.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, But the best experts are so in love with their subject that they're delighted to explain to you the nuances in a way that shows their interest. Like you think about your best teachers you had in school. You know, like I remember my math teachers that were really good, and they were really good because they loved the subject and they loved getting into it with us. That's when you respect experts is because they're in love with it and they want to share that love with you, not because they talk down to you. Yeah. That's what I think is missing.
0: So, I, I mean, I think that that's a wonderful question to end the episode on, but I do always try to end it by asking, is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: Um... Maybe the one that is interesting, just because it's controversial, and I think your readers might find it fun, and we were talking about Ukraine at the start is, was it right or not to ban Sputnik and RT News?
0: Those are Russian media outlets. That's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Russian state-run media. So Sputnik is very much state-run media. RT is arguably a pseudo-private company, has real revenues, but clearly has a Russian influence. And um, because we're talking a lot about the media, I thought this is just a very interesting question and one that we really struggled with with the factual because when in doubt, we tend never to ban anything. Like, again, we're just like, we'll rate it. We'll show you the ratings. Your call, Mr. Reader. Um, and I think on this one, most of the world got it wrong. Hmm. They shouldn't have banned it. Why? Um, because the, the repercussions of that are really bad for Russian citizens. When we banned Sputnik and RT, it's not like most of us believe that nonsense anyways. But what ended up happening was Russia said, oh, really? Guess what? BBC, Bloomberg, Journal, you're out of here. Get out of the country. And that sucks for Russian citizens. If we want this war to come to an end sooner, we need Russian people to know all the facts. They need to know everything that's going on, too, because so they can hold their government accountable. But when we cut out all the Western media there so quickly, it's hard for them. You have to know how to use VPNs and all kinds of nonsense to now get information. That's not going to happen to most. So I think that was a mistake for that reason.
0: And is your argument that Putin would not have eliminated those sources had we not first banned Russian news sources?
1: I don't think it would have been as quick Maybe down the line, but no, not as quick. This was clearly retaliatory, mm. um, and there's no need to. Like, the, I don't know how many people in the world are reading RT and Sputnik and saying, they're the truth, all the rest is lies. And the segment that is doing that, and I'm talking about outside of Russia, but the mm-hmm. segment outside of Russia that has chosen to believe Sputnik and RT over every other outlet Probably is a lost segment anyways. I don't think you're saving them by blocking those two outlets. Right. Um, So I think at the end, you didn't really help the West that much, Western readers. And what you did do was harm Russian readers. Hmm. And I think that was a mistake. We We didn't factor into it what we are doing for them. They're part of the world too. And I want them to have credible news and all the facts as well.
0: All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciated having you, and I hope that uh, later we can have you back.
1: Thank you so much. Heather. It's such a delightful conversation, such great, difficult, important questions. So thank you very much for that.
0: Thank you. And thank you for answering them. <laughs>
1: thank you very much.
0: All right, guys, that's it for today. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, rate, review, whatever options are available on the platform you're listening to it on. and. I will see you guys next week. All right, that's it. Stay safe, guys.